We are in a series called Seven, a talk series, a study series that we call Seven. Um, we call it Seven because it's about seven letters, letters that Jesus wrote to seven different churches. And so every week what we do is we go to the mailbox and because it's actual letter, it was a letter, letter that was given, letter that was delivered, and we get the letter for the next week. And this week, just so that you know, um, it is a letter to a church named Thyatira, which is actually the city that it's in, Thyatira. All these churches are just really interesting names, all right? So this is the way I want to frame it today. This is the way I want you to start to take this in today. I, I want you to imagine um, someone who is considering a new habit in their life. Sometimes in the church we call them discipline. Sounds kind of scary, but it's really just, it's a habit. And their habit is they want to begin every day spending a little time reading what God's word has to say, reading the Bible, right? That's a great habit, by the way. If you don't have it, I, I encourage you. That's one to go after. You don't have to read for an hour. Maybe it's going to be five minutes, ten minutes, whatever it is. But let's suppose I'm wanting to start a new habit in my life. I want to start to read the Bible a little bit every day. So I get up early in the morning. I am going to um, brew the first uh, cup of coffee. I'm going to find a comfy chair somewhere in my house, and I got my coffee, and there really is coffee here. I'll prove it to you. As long as they didn't mess with me, and it's coffee. And so um, I'm going to read. And the first place I go is Revelation chapter 2, and I see this heading to the church in Thyatira. Here's what I read. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. All right, that sounds good. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. <laughs> that's a funny name. I mean, if I'm reading for the first time, it's like, that's kind of funny. Who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious, 
and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. The one, that one, will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I'm thinking... That's kind of weird. In fact, that's kind of harsh. I mean, this is why I walked away from church way back there. It was like I I had this image of a lightning bolt God. And when you did something wrong, pow, right? Zap, he he gets you. That, that, That was the image and yet recently, I have come to realize that that's, that's really not, I thought, the picture of who he is. He's not out to get me, like, to hurt me. He's, he's out to get me because he loves me. And I've recently learned that this thing with God is really about a relationship, at least I thought it was, until I just read this. I mean, what is this about? This seems like the picture of the lightning bolt God to me. This, this seems like the God who's, who's ready, right, to, to zap when, I mean, that, that's some pretty severe language here. What's that about? Shall we find out? In order to understand it, we need to start with the city of Thyatira itself. We need to start with the city itself. And so... Again, to give you a clear um, picture geographically of where we're talking about, because Thyatira is a real city. This was a a, a real church. Um, You see where we have moved around the the horseshoe. Pergamum was the northernmost part last week, this week, Thyatira. There it is that sits between Pergamum and Sardis. And it is interesting that Thyatira is actually known as the city between. And here's partly why. Pergamum, we saw last week, had this high, what we would call a fortress. It was the place where the temples and those sorts of things existed, but it was also the place that when an enemy shows up, you're able to run to the high place, and everybody knows the advantage is at the high place. You'd much rather be throwing rocks down than you would be trying to throw rocks up. And so the high place was a fortress. It's where you could defend yourself. Well, the same thing is true in Sardis right? The city on the other side. Sardis also has a high place, a fortress. I mean, if you're going to take those cities, you better bring your lunch because this, this is going to be a fight. But in Thyatira, there is no fortress. If trouble comes, your best option is run. Run to one of the other cities. You are the city in between. However, there is also a positive to be in the city in between because Thyatira is an intersection. It is an intersection of highways. And with highways come trade. All right? So we could almost think about um, Thyatira is a place where interstates run through. That's how we would put it in our conversation today. There are advantages to being near interstates, like you get to eat at Cracker Barrel, right? Because they always build on the interstate, right? I'm saying 
in Thyatira, businesses like interstates. They, they like being on those kinds of roads. And so it, it was a pretty good place to live in those regards. If you looked at the city ruins of Thyatira today, you would not be overwhelmed. In fact, you would be underimpressed. I showed you some stuff last week I thought that was pretty cool from the whole just geographical, uh, geological uh, ruins, all those types of things. Um, Ephesus was the same way. You could spend days in Ephesus looking at the ruins. Uh, Thyatira, mm, don't book a hotel because about five, ten minutes, you look at the ruins and it's like, this is it. You would be underwhelmed, not interesting. But what is interesting is what we know about the history of Thyatira, that Thyatira was a city of guilds. Guilds, that's not a word we use all the time, so I'm I'm showing you it is the word guild. What is a guild? Well, you can kind of think union, but not exactly, right? Here's how it works. If you are a bronze worker in Thyatira, You are a part of the Bronze Worker Guild. You belong. But it wasn't just a uh, meeting that you go to every once in a while. It's It's not just a union. It's also where you live. In that the Bronze Workers Guild had a section of Thyatira. We would say a particular neighborhood where all us bronze workers lived. We all would live in the same neighborhood. It was a part of the guild. Cloth, the dyeing of cloth was also a big deal in Thyatira. Purple was, was the color. Purple. I like purple. Purple's a good color. You put like purple with gold especially. I don't know. It just I think it looks really good. Go Tigers. I don't know. But that purple, purple was a big deal in, in Thyatira. And, and so there was a, there was a cloth dyeing guild And if that was your trade, you lived in that neighborhood. You were a basket weaver. There's a basket weaver guild, and you live in that neighborhood. That's the city. And Jesus says to the people who live in that kind of context, he gives them some pretty encouraging words. Verse 19, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Well, that sounds like, I mean, that's a compliment. That means they're not stuck, they're not static, something is happening, there's more now than there was before, but look particularly at what he says, your love. He acknowledges that these people at times have chosen to act in a way that builds trust and removes fear, because that's what love does. Love acts in such a way that it builds trust and it removes fear, drives it away. He says, I see your faith. Your faith is that you believe God. You believe God for what matters the most. You, you believe God that he will provide those things that matter most. He says, I see your service, right? Your eyes are not just on yourself, but, but your, your eyes are, are, are on meeting the needs of others, one need at a time, one hurt at a time, one heart at a time, one neighbor at a time. I see your service and then your perseverance. I love the word perseverance. Perseverance is just about what do you do when the barriers come? What do you do 
when the stuff pushes against you. And apparently there were people in the church at Thyatira who were, this is what they did. Like, we're going to get up and we're going to do it again. We're going to get up and we're going to try it again. We're going to continue to per- push forward. Perseverance turns average into outstanding, in case you don't know that. Just persevering, bulldog perseverance. I want to be that way in my relationship with God. I mean, I, I don't want to bulldog persevere in stuff that's not according to the heart of God, but if, if it's about my relationship with God, I just want to be bulldog persevering. I mean, I want to serve even on the days that I get up and I don't feel like serving anybody but me. No, I want to persevere through that. I, I, want, to, I want to be generous with what God has given me, even in the moments when I look around me and I go, well, I could either be generous with this or I could use it to get what somebody else has and I think I deserve what somebody else has. No, I, I want to just, I want to persevere through that stuff and I, I want to be, I, I want to forgive even when I don't feel like forgiving. I want to have that. I I want that. And apparently, there was a part of this church that was known for that. They would persevere in the difficult situation. So the question is, then what's the difficult situation? What is it in Thyatira that they are persevering through? Here's the answer. The guild. The guild. Because what I described to you earlier, these unions, if you will, these groupings of people... Not only did they live in the neighborhood, but in every neighborhood there was a shrine, a temple. And in our bronze-working neighborhood, we have a temple to the god of, anybody want to guess? Bronze. We have a temple to the false god of of bronze. So so that we can worship the god of bronze, right? Because that's what we do. And we want to be blessed in what we do so that we have more... And so if you were a part of the guild, you lived in the neighborhood, you were expected to go to the temples, and you would take part in dinners. Dinners. So glad that our kids are in today. And when our kids are in, it it continually develops in me what I call code. All right? So sometimes today I'm going to talk in code, and and you can understand code. I know that you can. Um, Dinners were really, uh, we could call them, um, out-of-control drinking parties. That's what we could call these dinners. And um, young girls would be invited to these parties. Yeah, like kids. Young boys would be invited to these parties. Slaves would be invited to these parties. You get where I'm going? It was disgusting. It was disgusting. And we might hear something like that and we go, well, I would never choose to be a part of that. There's no way I'm ever going to associate with anything like that. Well, let me frame it for you this way. You're a bronze worker. And your daddy was a bronze worker. And your grandpa was a bronze worker. They lived in the same neighborhood that you live in. Your family's been in this neighborhood your whole entire life. You know everybody. 
everybody. All these relationships, everybody grew up going to school together. I mean, you, you are connected because this is your livelihood. And for generations, your family has gone to the temples. And for generations, your, your family has attended these dinners. And so here's what I'm saying. The moment you choose to remove yourself from that, what you just chose to do is to isolate and you just chose to push out pretty much everybody else that you have ever known, and you're saying to you and your family, we're going to do this without anybody else. It also meant something for you financially, because remember, why are we going to worship the bronze god? Because we want bronze money. That's what we want. We want stuff to sell. We, we want our families to be blessed. We want there to be prosperity. And so these dinners and everything associated with them, they portrayed it like this was a part of sacrificing to the gods. This is what we do to try to appease the gods. And when the gods are appeased, then they will bless our families. And so for you not to go to the places of worship and you not to be associated with them Basically, this is the invitation in Thyatira. Come to Jesus and embrace financial destitution. That was the invitation. Come to Jesus and embrace financial destitution because this is going to cost you and your family financially. Unless, unless you are able to keep afoot in both worlds. I mean, you, if you can trust Jesus and keep a foot in, in his kingdom, you are, you are his family, you are a part of his church, and so you, you can keep one foot in his kingdom, and then if you can just, you know, maybe the other foot has to, has to be a part of the guild because it's, it's a part of your way of life. I mean, it's a part of taking care of your family. It's a part of you being, being responsible unless you can keep a foot in both worlds, and I'm telling you, that's why Jesus writes the letter to this church. And apparently the center of the problem is a woman, very charismatic, very influential, and she is leading people to sin. You heard the description of the sin. Now, this is not just something she's doing to the city. This is something she's doing inside the church. These are letters written to the church. And she is saying, you really are okay. You, you really don't have to decide between the church and the guild. You don't. You, you, don't, you don't have to worry about having to have one foot in each place. You are still in good standing with God. And I'm telling you, the punishment that is spoken of in this text, I believe it is to her and it is to those who follow her. Her name is what? Jezebel. Jezebel. Ain't nobody here today named Jezebel. Because nobody names anybody Jezebel. And especially the Jews would not name anybody Jezebel. I, I, I tend to think that this is really the nickname in a way that Jesus is giving to this person in the church in Thyatira in that day. I think he's using a symbolic name because Jezebel was a queen 
way back that we can read about in the Old Testament in the Bible. And I'm telling you, nobody named their daughters Jezebel. And I'm going to explain why in just a minute. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to tell you her story so that we can understand the story that's happening in Thyatira so that we can understand our story. All right? So back in, back in her day, where did the people of God live? Israel lived in Israel, right? That's their name. That was, that was the land. So God's people lived in this land. Now I want to show you a map of the land. So here you got Israel, this, this strip that runs north and south here. Here's what I want you to understand. If you were traveling from the Persian Gulf and you wanted to go to Egypt, you did not cut straight across to the west. And the reason is straight across to the west is a desert. It's a desert. I mean, it's just sort of invitation to die. All kind of things can happen in the desert, right? Something goes wrong, the car breaks down, right? You, you don't travel straight across in that day from the Persian Gulf to Egypt. You would go up the Fertile Crescent, and then you would travel down the strip through Egypt, through Israel to Egypt. That's how the caravans would travel. Lots of traffic passed through Israel. Same thing is true of Europe. If you were to follow this red line on, on in that direction, that now you're talking Europe. And so if people did not want to go by ship, they want to go by land, they would come across and then they would go straight down through Israel again in order to get to some place like Egypt. So think through this with me. Egypt is in Africa. Persian Gulf is, is considered Asia. The red line to the left, for those of you who are map challenged, all right, to the left, that, that takes you to, to Europe. In other words, Africa, Asia, Europe, Israel is a land bridge between three continents. And international trade superpowers ran right through the land on a regular basis. Here's why that's so significant. It is so significant when you understand that God's people, Israel, had a calling. A calling. That calling was to reflect their God. That was their calling. Their calling was to reflect the God of creation. They were called to be his reflectors. Now, how did they do that? Well, at least 10 ways that we know of, like they only worshiped one God. His name was Jehovah. They didn't have any other images to any other gods. They treated him as holy, even his name. And they worshiped him as such with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. Their children would obey their parents. They didn't steal from each other. They didn't lie to each other. They would stay faithful to their spouses. You know them as 10, what? Commandments. Those 10 commandments are really God declaring who he is. I am truth, so my people don't lie to each other. They don't need to. 
I am the God who provides, so my people don't have to steal from each other. I am the God of life, and so they don't have to murder. I am the God of commitment, and so when they make commitments to each other, they keep those commitments. This is who I am. The Ten Commandments are not just a set of rules. They were reflectors of the people to whom God had chosen and given a calling to reflect who he is. And so I'm telling you, it was this way. In, in that day, those, those caravans would travel through Israel, and the word on the street was, you are not going to believe what this place is like. This place is unlike any place we've ever been before. You, 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 don't, you don't even really have to lock your doors at night because they don't steal from each other. And, and their, their marriages, they, they tend to stay intact and, and they don't like go to court and make stuff up about each other. They don't, they don't lie. And, and there's no other like temples or shrines to Baal or any of, it is the weirdest place. They're not like anybody else. It was their calling. And word would spread. As the caravans tram through, have you heard about this place and have you heard about these people and have you heard about this God? That's their mission. That's their calling. But if they become like everybody else and they begin to compromise, this whole thing implodes. The, the, the reflection isn't happening. God's calling on their life is that they would reflect who he is. If they start to compromise that, then it isn't going to work. So here's, here's Jezebel's story. There was a king in Israel named Ahab. And like all other kings, he would make alliances. That's what kings do. You make alliances, we kind of, you make peace treaties, that sort of thing. He made an alliance with the king of Phoenicia. And the daughter of the king of Phoenicia's name was? Good guess, Jezebel. And so Jezebel became a part of the alliance in that she became the bride of Ahab. But when she packed up her stuff and moved to Israel, she also packed up Baal and brought the false god with her. And during Ahab and Jezebel's reign, Baal becomes the national religion of Israel. Uh-huh. She systematically kills off, one by one, all the prophets of God and basically made it illegal to worship Jehovah. In other words, that little strip of land, the people who lived there became just like everybody else. No longer mission reflectors. They compromise. Thus, enter the discipline of God. Elijah is the prophet of God who calls down a three-year drought on the land of Israel. No rain, three years. God says, uh-uh, enough is enough, right? He's God. There's no other God. He's not, he's not going to do this. And so he says, look, I, I'm putting it into this. So a three-year drought hits the land, Ahab dies, 
a coup occurs. The wannabe king rolls into town. Jezebel, you got to read all this later. Jezebel is standing in the window looking down with her attendants. The wannabe king says to her attendants, are you on my side or her side? They look at each other and determine the right answer is to say, we're on your side. They pick up Jezebel, throw her out the window. She dies. And the dogs eat, as in there was no need for puppy chow that evening. Is that gross or what? The Bible's great. You got to read it. You got to read it. That's Jezebel's story. And along with her, her entire family was wiped out. Because we don't want any family tree where a grandson will later return Israel to the ways of Baal. Nope, gone. Calling, compromise, discipline. That was 800 years before a cross and a resurrection. Jesus, the creator of all, comes, gives his life for us, makes a way that we can be right with him, that we can be his children, and that miracle is that he would come to actually live in us. In other words, now God's children are not determined by a geographical place in which they live. God's children are now determined by who supernaturally lives in us. Now, where do the people of God live? Where do the people of God live? Right? All all over the place. They live everywhere, Jews, non-Jews, right? People with high status, we would say, people with low status, they live everywhere. This is the picture. Jesus said to us, you are the, hint, uh-oh, uh-oh. That might be the problem. That's why the letter's being written. You are the, let's try it again, light of the world. And Jesus said about himself, I am the light of the world. Okay, well, who's the light of the world? Well, he is. We we do what? We reflect. We reflect. This is who we are as his kids. The apostle Peter said it this way about the church. This is what he said, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That ain't a bad line. Is that really who you are? Is that really who I am? Can we read that one more? Let me just read that one more time. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation from all over the place, right? We live live everywhere now, but we're a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful what? Light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Man, you, you are a holy nation, not like everybody else. Do, do you understand that the church really is supposed to be this island, in a sense, of, of, of sanity so that when people in the darkness around us, the moments that we become sick and tired of pursuing all the other stuff that we think will fill up our life, but it just continues 
to leave us empty. We're, 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 we're tired of the, of the, of the, of the dinners and, 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 and the party and the, and the wake up not knowing where I, I was the night before. When all of that just runs you empty, that you know where to turn. That you know where to turn. But if, if the Jesus followers look just like everybody else, and Jesus says, by the way, the one who gave his life to make this possible, he's like, I'm not okay with that. I am not okay with that. This, this woman that he calls Jezebel says, it's okay. It's okay that you look just like everybody else. It's okay. It's okay for you to go to dinner in the guilds on Saturday night and then celebrate the Lord's Supper on Sunday morning. It's okay. It's okay. The church in Thyatira had a calling, but they compromised that calling, and now there is discipline. Calling, compromise, discipline. Man, I hope those three words, I hope they last longer than just these moments together with us today. So here's the discipline. Revelation 2, verse 21. I have given her, that's Jezebel, time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a, check this out, bed of suffering. That word bed can also be translated couch, which in, in the dinner whole setting, there was something called what we would call a party couch. I'm just leaving it there. And Jesus said, I, I will cast her on a bed, on a couch of suffering. In other words, the party couch is going to become her, her sick bed, her maybe your deathbed. And I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Now look, I don't think he's talking about flesh and blood. This is my son, this is my daughter. I think in this language, in this context, what he's talking about, she is the leader, she is the teacher. These are the, the students, we would say, the children who follow. They are the ones who take in what she says and they repeat it to other people. They, 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 are, they are children. He's like, nope, nope, this is done. And then check this line out. Then all the churches will know. I like that line. All the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. In other words, this discipline is so stunning that the Christians in Ephesus hear about it. The Christians in Pergamum hear about it. The church in Smyrna, they hear about it. The word is on the street. Did you hear what happened in Thyatira? Man, that, that, the, it was to such a degree that everybody knows whatever you're going to do, don't do that. Because God's serious about that. Let me, let, me see, let me see if I can paint this picture, and especially with the kids in the room today. I think, I think this can help us get there, all right? Let's imagine, kids, tomorrow morning you go into school. I thought you would cheer going to school, right? Because you love going to school, all right? And, and part of why you love going to school is because you love your teacher. You do. Like, you want to go to school tomorrow, and, and you expect to walk into the room, and you expect there your teacher's going to be, and he or she is really good, and they, 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 they're smart, they give you, they help you, right? But you walk in tomorrow, and they're not there. 
which means what? What's the word? Substitute. And the question immediately that rises in a classroom when a substitute is on deck is who is in control of this class today? Right? Come on, some of y'all remember. Who is in control of this class today? And so immediately the class plan goes into place and the first two young ladies raise their hand. We need to go to the restroom. And she says, okay. Yes. They go off to the restroom and immediately the next two people raise their hand. We need to go to the restroom too. She's like, oh, I'll tell you what. Okay, okay, you go. And then the next two, right? And, and it just, you know, this is, this is how it works because some of y'all were the ones raised. You were like the first ones. You were like the first line, right? You got to find out who's in control of this classroom today. And then the hands start shooting up and she's going, no, 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 no. Not everybody can go at once. We got to slow this thing down. And so then, you know what happens. Then everybody's starting to talk, right? And people are starting to talk because they know. We're in control of this classroom today. Conversations are happening, and she's trying to quiet them down, right? And then all of a sudden, somebody's pushing somebody. Somebody done punched somebody in the eye, right? So she's trying to fix all that, and somebody's in, over in the corner, and, and you got to fix this. And she said, come on, we all, she starts to plead, right? She starts to plead. Come on, we, we got to quiet down. And about that moment, the door opens, and the assistant principal walks in. And everybody knows, you don't mess with her. Don't mess with the assistant principal. And she simply looks inside that classroom and says, you, you, and you, come with me. And she turns to that teacher and says, I'll be back for any other names that give you trouble while I'm gone. Now, when I tell you that story... There are even children in the room that go, yes, right? In, in the middle of all that chaos, in the middle of all that stuff going on, it's like, yes. There's something in your heart that's just like, yes, yay, right? Because somebody takes control. Can I tell you something? Jesus is merciful and loving. But hear what I'm about to tell you. Jesus is not weak. He is merciful and he is loving, but he is not weak. And I want to make sure that you don't have some image of Jesus who is wringing his hands and pleading with the class who is out of control. No, the Jesus we know is taking names. And in the end, he says, I didn't give my life to raise up a family, to raise up a body of people who look just like everybody else. That's what's happening in the church in Thyatira. So now, can, can we go back to the dude in the chair? Can, can we go back to the dude in the chair who's, who's reading his Bible for the first time and, and he's hearing this harsh language, that, that it sounds pretty tough. This is lightning bolt stuff. Does that repel him when he understands what we just talked about? No, it doesn't repel him. It actually compels him. And all of a sudden, I think he begins to think. Are there ways that we, the church, tend to look just like the rest of the world? 
have we become just like everyone else? And his mind goes to things like hmm, spending. And he says, are we different inside this family than what we see outside the family of God? Or do we also shop when we're lonely and bored? And he looks at his closet. And he's like, why, why do I keep thinking that I need more when it's full? And he looks at his credit card debt and thinks, if the credit card debt inside the Jesus community is the same as the outside of the Jesus community, are, are we actually bowing to materialism? And you might be saying to me right now, whoa, 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 Jeff, come on. That is not that big a deal, man. This, this is just how people live. And that's the point of this letter. Have we become just like everyone else? And then suddenly he thinks of marriage. He's sitting in the chair and he, he reads this letter and he thinks of marriage and he thinks about some of those Christian marriages that he know they, they just didn't make it. Now, come on, he's not, he's not slinging rocks at this point because he knows. He knows there are so many factors in marriage. He knows that it is impossible for one partner to keep that alive when another partner just bails, when another partner just gives up, when another partner just walks out, when another partner just refuses. He, he knows that. He knows we're not throwing rocks at everybody in this point because he, he just knows it can be incredibly difficult and you can't make it work when somebody else is not even willing to try. But at the same time, he looks on the outside and he knows that marriages on the outside have a 50-50 shot. That's the, that's the percentage. 50% that will make it, 50% that won't. And he knows that the percentages on the inside are not much different. And his question is, have we become just like everyone else? He, th he knows that there are some things that God has said um, are supposed to only belong in certain arenas like marriage. It's code. And he knows the averages are on the outside. The average age for a kid is 14 and a half. And on the inside, the average age for a kid is about 15 and a half. And he sits in his chair and he thinks, is that the difference that Jesus makes? He buys us a year? Or have we become like everybody else? Now, this is what I want to make sure you understand before we get, to, before we get out of this. Then. This does not mean, I'm repeating, this does not mean, this does not mean, not mean, does not mean that the church doesn't struggle. That's not what it means. It does not mean that we who follow Jesus don't struggle with our finances, because we do. It does not mean that we don't struggle with our marriages, because we do. It does not mean we don't struggle with our families, because we do. It doesn't mean we don't struggle with our desires. We do. We do. We're not different because we don't struggle. 
We are different in what we do in the struggle in that we are given supernatural power to lean into and we are to fight for the outcome that God wants to be the outcome. We're supposed to be humble enough to keep asking the question, what do I need to do to make this thing better? What do I? One of these days I'm going to preach a sermon series called, so you're saying it's me? Uh-huh. It's like, what, what, what do I need to do? Right? We're supposed to be, and we're supposed to draw on the love and the correction and the encouragement of God's people. I'm saying, church, that means we got to make sure that we're a place. We are a people. We are a church where we can admit it. I'm struggling. I'm struggling with my family. I'm struggling with my marriage. I'm struggling with some finances. We got to be a place where trustworthy relationships are developed so that weaknesses can be shared and fought for. Sometimes I wonder how much of our looking just like the rest of the world is because we don't feel like the church is a trustworthy place, that I can't admit it when I'm failing, therefore I don't tell anybody, therefore I fight it by myself, therefore it only gets worse and eventually it just falls apart. What if the church in America has slowly been seduced into an isolation out of a fear of rejection where we, we really have made it where church attendance and a few nice acts of serving are pretty much what differentiate us from the rest of the world. Now, come on, I get this, because I've been in churches, I've been in seasons of churches where I wouldn't tell them if I was struggling in my marriage, because I don't think they would have helped me, they'd have fired me. You know what I'm saying? And sometimes that's what people feel like. Like, I wouldn't tell this, because they're not going to help me. They're actually going to just kind of hang me out to dry. Man, we can't be that place. We can't be that people. We got we to, gotta, look, I want to be a Jesus follower, a God reflector. I, I need the people in my life. I want, I want my family. I want the people on my street, the people in my class, the people in my office. I want them to know that God is not like anybody else. And I'm called to be that reflector. But in order for that to take place, man, we, we have to be honest people. Because if we just hide it from one another... We won't win the fight. And then we'll just end up looking just like the statistics everywhere else. It's kind of something just God started to resonate with my heart. I think it's something that, it's something that I think, and he just wants to grow us in those areas. My, my goal was not to stand up here and go, how come we all look like everybody else? The goal is to go, how can we become the people? That this becomes the place that I can fight for not having to be like everybody else. But the point is, I'm still fighting. And if my marriage is still struggling, if my finances are still struggling, I can trust you to help me. Maybe you're here today and you say, that's me, man. I'm tired. I'm empty. I'm tired. I'm empty. Well, I, I want you to understand that even we, the church, can't fix what Jesus can fix. He is the light. He is the answer. He's the place you need to turn. But we do want to be, and I'm promising you, there really are safe people here that really will love you. They really will care for you. Maybe some of us as Christians today need to learn uh, to lean into some other Christians because we're struggling. 
And we, we got to admit some things, and we got to fight this thing together. In just a second, we're going to celebrate a little bit. We're going to celebrate the God who really is who he says he is. He's great. He really is light. He really is truth. He really does forgive. He really does heal. In the next few moments, we're praying that God will do that. Even as we're singing, as we're celebrating, we want to see him do that. I'm inviting you to turn to him. Um, there'll be some folks over here on the side as we're celebrating. There'll be some folks that you can talk to. They'll pray with you. They're not going to drag you up here in front of anybody. It's, not, it, it, it's, about, it's trustworthy. That's just what I'm trying. I want you to know. I want to do something before we start to sing, though. Would you stand with me? I want us to declare something together. I want us to declare something together. That passage that we read earlier, I want us to roll through it again. But I changed it a little bit. All right? And don't, don't throw any rocks at me. I'm not changing Scripture. I just changed the pronoun to where instead of us just reading about somebody else, we understand what we're about to read. This is, this is us. This is we. And so instead of you are a chosen people, it's we are a chosen people. And I just want you to say it with me. I want you to read it with me because I want you to hear the words of the Jesus who speaks it over you. And then we'll celebrate it. All right? We got it? You ready? Here we go. But we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received 